Psalm 95. Can somebody tell me which page in the Pew Bibles that is? 426, page 426. Psalm 95. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the flock under his care. Today, if only you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at, Mas- at Massa in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on an oath, on oath, in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. This is the word of the Lord. Right, so let's pray as we come to this wonderful psalm this morning. Uh, Father, thank you for the truths of this psalm that have spoken to me in this last week. I pray that they would speak to us as well. Please help us to see to the heart of the matter here this morning and to respond. So please be with me as I speak. Be with everyone here as we listen to what you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. We are in the midst of a new sermon series in the new year, which I've titled Praying by the Book, because the Psalms are the church's prayer book, the original prayer book of the church, and actually the prayer book of God's people uh, preceding the Christian era. Uh, They were the Jewish prayer book and Jesus's prayer book, most importantly. He always has a psalm on his lips in the New Testament when he's uh, praying or making statements. In the Psalms, we see 150 divinely authorized prayers that express the full range of human emotion. If you've ever wanted to learn how to pray, if you've ever felt like your prayer life could be deeper, it could be uh, richer, but you didn't know how, this is where you can learn to pray. Let the Psalms be your guide. Recite them, sing them, study them, you will learn the language of prayer. That's the thesis for this series. Uh, over the last two weeks, we've learned, that, um, we've learned from Psalm 2 about how the fact that Jesus is king should give form and content to all of our prayer. Last week, from Psalm 4, we heard how the right kind of evening prayer can give us a, a peaceful, restful, quiet night of sleep. And this week, we come to Psalm 95, we're going to learn 
Uh, one way, one model for praying in the morning. Psalm 95 is probably one of the most frequently recited psalms in the Bible. Because from very early on in church history, uh, it became the morning prayer psalm. So in the Western tradition, at least, that's Roman Catholics, Anglicans, Protestants, a morning prayer psalm. Recite this psalm as uh, part of every day's service, the first thing you recite. Sometimes it's known as the Vanity. That's uh, just the Latin for the first word of this, which is come, the imperative, come, Vanity. And as you can tell from just that first word alone, it is a psalm that invites us to join in with something. Come. And it's asking us to join in with worship. Worship is really what this psalm is all about. It's framing the whole day when you pray it in the morning as worship of God. And indeed, it's framing our whole lives as worship of God. So I want to help you see how this psalm answers three questions. First, what is worship? Then why should we worship? And then how can we worship? What is worship is first of all. And there is an outline in your service sheets if you want to follow along and make notes. It seems to me if we were to go around the room and we were to ask uh, each one of us individually, what is worship? we'd probably get a lot of different answers because Christians use the word to mean a lot of different things. For many of us, maybe from a more um, evangelical church background, when we hear the word worship, we immediately think music, singing. That's what worship is. In some Christian circles, prayer is just prayer and Bible study is just Bible study, but singing is worship. It engages our emotions and the music swells and we feel goosebumps and and our eyes, maybe they fill with tears at some of these wonderful hymns and songs that we sing. And we think, now I'm really worshiping. But of course, you don't have to be a Christian to experience strong emotion when you sing, do you? You you go to a K-pop concert, Uh, you go to a Taylor Swift concert. You will feel strong emotion as the thousands sing along. You don't have to to even sing to feel that sort of strong emotion. Film brings that out for us. Art sometimes, the best art, gives us this sort of sense of awe. Others, maybe of us, maybe we've been raised in a more conservative, religious uh, background, And maybe worship for you means rituals. So, you know, it might mean you go to Mass and you worship at Mass. Or you go to church and you worship at church. Or if you're from a non-Christian religious background, maybe you, you go and you light a joss stick, you say five prayers a day, you, you meditate, and that's worship. But Psalm 95 shows us that worship is more than ritual. It shows us it's more than emotion. 
Here, the definition of worship that we get from Psalm 95, and I've been helped to see this by uh, Tim Keller, actually, is that worship, according to this psalm, means ascribing ultimate value to something in a way that engages your mind, your will, and your emotions. Worship is ascribing ultimate value to something in a way that engages your whole being, your mind, your heart, and your will. Your mind, your will, and your emotions. How do we get that? Well, there are three calls in Psalm 95. Three imperatives. Verse 1 says, come. Verse 6 says, come. Verse 8 says, do not harden. So verses 1 and 2, they use the language of emotion. Now, this is why so many people think worship means singing, because verses 1 and 2, singing, shouting, thanksgiving, extolling with music. Verses 6 and 7 use the language of will. So come and bow down before him. Humble yourself before him. Submit to his authority over you. Verses 8 and onward use the language of reason and understanding. Hear his voice. Obey him. Accept what he says. It's important to see that real worship, true worship, engages your whole being, your emotions, your will, and your mind, because we very easily accept false worship or partial worship as a substitute. How might we do that? Well, you, you can engage in ritual. You can go to church. You can say all the right prayers. They're written there for you, at least in churches like ours. You can take communion. You can do all of that, and you can never experience the joy of right relationship with your maker. It never touches your emotion. A lot of people do that. Maybe you grew up doing that. You think that's a sort of... Uh, that's what this is all about, isn't it? Just doing the thing, the ritual. But that's not worship, according to Psalm 95. Or you can come to church. You can have these great emotional experiences. You can weep. Things can set your heart pounding with excitement. And afterwards, it has zero impact on your life. It changes nothing about how you live. And, And you go on living exactly the way you were, untransformed, that is not worship either, according to Psalm 95. Worship engages our whole being. And the only way that something can engage our whole being is if we ascribe ultimate value to it. If we say, that is above everything else. And that's what the psalmist is doing. He says, sing for joy, shout, play music, engage your emotions. Why? Verse 3 is the explanation for why. For, that is because, the Lord is a great God, the great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth. Verse 6, he says, come, let's bow down before him. Let's kneel, engage your will, submit 
to this great God. Give your life to him. Why? Verse 7, for he is our God. We're the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. He's pledged himself to us. He's entered into relationship, a covenant relationship with us. He's made us his people. That's why we should submit to him. Uh, What's the psalmist doing here? He's listing the ways that God is great, that his excellencies exceed everything else. He's saying you are uniquely worthy because, and worship pours out of him. It transforms him. Only a, a worthy God can engage our whole being. And friends, that is the key to our worship. It's got to be, or it's not worship. That's where actually the English word worship comes from Old English, worthship. It's ascribing worth to something. We're only able to worship God if we see, if we recognize his ultimate worth. And it transforms our lives. So let's, let's decide now. We're not going to settle for an emotional jolt. We're not going to call that worship. That's good. That's part of it. But that's not all of it. We're not going to be satisfied with a little inspirational thought for the day. Something that, that sort of tickles our brains. That's not worship. Let's get beyond, actually, just being part of a community. You want to be part of a community? There are lots of clubs you can join. There are lots of sports you can play. You'll be part of a community. That's not worship. We've got to pray for an understanding of God's ultimate worth. Otherwise, we're not worshiping him. That's what's got to captivate our hearts. It's got to change our lives. It's got to renew our minds. How worthy God is. Worship transforms us. I can't think of anything more worthwhile to pray in the morning. Father, give me a sense of your worth today. Help me live according to your worth. As long as it's called today. Let's today offer worthy worship. Why should we worship? Uh, Secondly, you might think we've answered that, but I think there's more for why we should worship. Why should I bother? You know, you might think, okay, I hear it's got to engage my whole being, etc. That sounds like a lot of work. You know, actually, I don't need my life to be transformed. I'm basically happy. I basically lead a fine life. I'm I'm okay. And the answer from this psalm for why we should worship is that we are already worshiping. We're already worshiping something. You ascribe ultimate value to something in life and you orient your whole life around it. What is that? Which God are you worshiping? Look again at verse 3. For the Lord is a great God, a great king above all 
gods. Above all the gods. And pause and, and think about that for a moment because that's a little strange. We might say, doesn't the Bible teach that there is only one God? Why does it say that he's the king above all the gods? Well, yeah, the Bible does teach there's, there, there's only one God, but that doesn't mean that people believe there's only one God, does it? Certainly the Canaanites, the people who lived right there among God's people, they worshipped lots of other gods. Very often, as you read the Old Testament, God's people worship lots of other gods, even if it's right alongside with the Lord himself. They worship these other gods too. And the pagan gods always had their own spheres. So you had the gods of this country, and when you enter that country, you worship their gods. But if you leave that country, you go to another one, you worship their gods. Or if you go to uh, Sail, you worship the gods of the oceans. If you go to the desert, you worship the desert gods. And they could help you in one context and they couldn't help you in another is what the thought was. And in relation to this psalm, three gods in particular stand out. Baal was a fertility god. The way you worship him was by visiting prostitutes in his sanctuary and doing on earth what you wanted him to do from heaven. So the idea was you would go, you would uh, engage in a sexual act, and if he took the hint, he would give economic prosperity. The land would become fertile. Good crops. Plenty of animals. His worship required you to do it visibly in front of him. He needed to see what you were doing so that he would take the hint. And so where do you worship Baal but on a mountain? Baal's the god of the mountains. The mountains are his. Tiamat, he was the god of the oceans. He, uh, or she, was the Babylonian goddess of chaotic power. And like the sea, constantly crashing against the land, wearing it down over time, wherever power was the priority, that's where she was enthroned. The oceans are hers. Molech was the god of the occult, the god of hidden things, the realm of the dead, the hidden depths of the earth were his. And so he was the god over things done in darkness, over hidden aspects of life. But we read in verse 3 and onward, 4 and 5, the psalmist's prayer just very succinctly, very simply, knocks those gods off their throne. For the Lord is a great God, the great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. It's although the psalmist is saying who are these gods that people worship? Where do they have authority again? 
Well, that's right, nowhere. The one you ascribe ultimate value to has no authority, no power. The Lord is Lord over them. The power that they have is in the Lord's hand. Fertility, prosperity, power, influence, deeds done in darkness, the Lord reigns over all of that. Now, even though we are separated from the psalmist by millennia, thousands of years, I hope you can see how this applies. Because people are still worshiping other gods. Gods that are no gods. Many people who call themselves Christians in our city join right in with the worship of the other gods. Wherever nothing is more important than the economy, wherever flashy holidays and big purchases are the key indicator of whether you're leading a good life or not, wherever the quarterly report, that's really the only thing that matters at the end of the day. Well, that's where Baal is still worshipped, isn't it? Prosperity production? Or again, maybe wherever sex is valued outside of all proportion. Isn't that Baal worship? And don't we see little cults of Tiamat in our, our workplaces? You know, the office bully playing politics to get whatever they want. And aren't those who secretly indulge in their addictions and their hidden compulsions, aren't they bowing down to Molech? The name of the false gods changes from culture to culture, but the, the worship is, is still there. Everybody's worshiping. And the reality is that all those gods are only ever going to demand more devotion the, prophet of Baal, the prophets of Baal, you remember in their encounter with Elijah, he's not acting. They cut themselves. They scream. They, they do everything because we're utterly devoted to you, Baal. Won't you answer us? The servants of Molech, they sacrificed their children to Molech in the Old Testament. And they never deliver what they promised. The gods never deliver because they're powerless, they're dead idols, they're nothing. But the psalmist's prayer is a wake-up call to his own soul, to the people around who are listening in. This is all in the plural. Turn away from the false gods. Ascribe greatness to God alone. Every act of worship, when you worship God alone is an act that's going to heal you. Every act of worship is going to change you. Every song of praise is a, a submission to his will. Every time you choose to obey him, you're peeling your heart away from the false gods. You're placing it in the hands of the, the only God who is your shepherd who loves you. 
He's the only one that's going to lead you to green pastures. He's the only one who can gather you together with his whole flock into his care. Now, if worship is that important, if it's the only thing that can transform us, if it's freeing, if it's life-changing, then there's one final question we have to be able to answer. How can we worship? How? I want to point out two things about how we can worship from this psalm. First, notice the rhythm of worship that this psalm gives to us. The pattern, verses 1 to 5, start with praise. Sing, shout, exult, because the Lord is a great God. Then, verses 6 to 7, move to confession. Come to him, kneel before him, submit to him. And then the last part, verses 7 to 11, hear God's word of rest. Hear his word of grace. Do you see how that mirrors what we do at church every week? That pattern is the same pattern? It's the pattern of Christian worship. Every part of that is important if we're going to worship with our whole being. It brings our emotions, our will, and our mind all together into worship. So you're asked to joyously praise God, not because you feel great this week as we start the service, not because you're happy, but because God is worthy of it. And so that's why we praise him to start our service. But when you see how praiseworthy God is, when you worship him as you ought, you realize how small you are. And so you've got to confess to him. The praise leads to the confession. And when you've humbled yourself before him, you need his word of grace then. Otherwise, you'll feel crushed by how holy God is, how small you are, and so he gives your wor- his word of grace to you. And he gives you an opportunity to be changed. You, after the sermon, uh, there's the offertory song, there's the communion table, the Lord's Supper. It's an opportunity to respond, to be changed. Worship has got to engage our whole being or it's not worship. Otherwise, it's just a cheap imitation. And therefore, if we use Psalm 95 as our pattern for prayer in the morning, we're beginning our day with something that transforms us. Something that transforms our whole day. We're training ourselves to put the whole day in the context of worship. It becomes an opportunity to show how God has transformed us. So the the rhythm of worship we see in this psalm, but then lastly, the rest of worship we see in this song. Verses 7 to 11, on first read, I don't know what you thought, but they might seem a little out of place. You know, you have this psalm all about praising the excellencies of God, seeing how worthy he is, and then you have this sudden warning at the end. From Israel's history. What is that about? Well, the psalm is referring to an episode in Israel's history which you can read about in Exodus 17. 
And it was after they'd been delivered out of slavery in Egypt. They're walking through the desert. They have all the burden of their camp on their backs. So all their possessions, all their animals, all their tents are on their backs as they wander through the desert. They desperately, desperately want rest. And God promises to give them rest in the promised land. So follow Moses to the promised land. But they begin grumbling against Moses and against the Lord, complaining that God has only brought us out here in the desert to kill us off. He has evil designs for us. In short, they refuse to accept God's word about what he's doing and what they need to do. And their refusal to take God at his word, that led them to being unable to rest, their rest being delayed for 40 years. They wandered in the desert till that whole generation died off and the next generation then entered in to the promised land. The author of Hebrews picks up this psalm and that episode in Israel's history and quotes from it in chapter 4 of the book of Hebrews. And he applies it to the whole church. The lesson there, he says, is a symbolic lesson for us. He says, we still share a problem. We still tend to wander through life burdened. We are burdened and we long for rest and our burden is our own work. The things that we think are going to save us. The things that we think are going to make us worthy And the author of Hebrews warns us, if we struggle and fight for our own salvation in life, we will never enter God's rest. But he says, if we hear God's word, we can enter into ultimate rest. Rest from all our works, says the author of Hebrews. And here's what he means. Every one of us is tempted to look at something for our salvation. Our careers, our families, our good deeds, our religious service. We're all tempted to look at our performance and uh, to, to use our performance to show that my life is worth something. You know, I'm a good person. I'm a moral person. I contribute to my community. I take care of my family. I give to charity. I'm a good person. But here's the thing, we're never sure we're good enough. We always have to keep trudging under the burden that we're carrying. Because if I drop that burden, then maybe I'm really not a good enough person. Maybe I'm really not a good person. And we have to keep trying to prove ourselves. But here's God's word of rest. Here's the gospel. Jesus came and he died for you. He came to pay the penalty for your sin. He lost everything. He paid an infinite cost. Psalm 53 says he looked at the reward for his suffering and he said it was worth it. He said, look at that. That's so valuable. It's all worth it for that. 
what was he looking at? What was the result of his suffering? You. You, the, the church, were what he was looking at, saying, this suffering will be worth it because I'll gain you. He loves you so much, he's willing to give everything to make you his own. And that is God's word. That's what gives life worth. That's what makes you acceptable. If you receive that, if you believe that, that changes your life. That changes everything. Because you don't look to your own works to give you worth, you look to Jesus' work to give you worth. You lay down your burdens, you enter God's rest. You worship with joy and fall down before him and listen to his voice. Allow me to pray. Father, today we hear your voice. If there are any here who've hardened their hearts to your voice, I pray that it would be softened this morning. That they would see your worth, your worthiness, and they would worship you. That they would know your love for them, the only God who loves them and will care for them. That they would know uh, that you are the God over the whole earth. Anything else that they're looking to for, for help and for wholeness, I pray they'd submit to you. Please would I submit to you and worship you. And please, Lord, would we find that promised rest. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.